Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to do a very quick introduction since we're running a little behind on time. I want to introduce you to Wendy Zi. She is Associate Professor of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Anesthesia Critical Care at Hopkins. Um, she's published hundreds of peer-reviewed journals on uh, neurocritical care, critical care, and um, intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, she's really played a central role in the development and in the execution of the MISTI and CLEAR trials, which are the um, non-invasive, um, minimally invasive neurosurgical trials to treat intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, she's a fellowship program director at Hopkins for neurocritical care. She's on the board of directors of the Neurocritical Care Society. She's uh, mentored numerous critical care fellows, including myself and Wendy um, Chang. Um, and on Twitter, she's the superstar multitasker. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. Oh. Well, well, thank you for this uh, kind introduction. Um, overwhelming, but, uh, but thanks for everyone for coming. And yes, I'm going to try to talk a little bit about um, the literature on intracranial pressure and cerebral perfusion in uh, spontaneous, for the most part, intracerebral hemorrhage. So these are my disclosures. Um, I have funding from the CLEAR and the three MISTI trials, which are NIH-funded trials, uh, consultation with a couple of uh, groups that are not related to this talk. And I will say that uh, we'll talk about the intracerebral use of Altaplase, or TPA, which is not currently uh, FDA-approved. So um, here's the only question, multiple-choice question. You can think about it, and we'll talk about it at the end again. So intracranial pressure monitoring after spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, a has been shown to improve outcome. B is most useful when done in conjunction with brain tissue oxygen monitoring. C is recommended for comatose salvageable patients. D should only be done as part of a randomized controlled trial. Or E allows CPP to be assessed and targeted. So um, physiologic basis of ICP monitoring. So intracranial pressure is, um, is kind of modeled as this epiphenomenon of cerebral compliance, right? And that is um, an indicator of both the tendency to cerebral herniation on the one hand and the tendency to ischemia on the other. And so um, uh, if you think about um, intracerebral hemorrhage, the, you know, and what you might see on a monitor, the numbers on the monitor are, are really not the targets themselves, right? The target is, is the targetable pathology that the ICP represents. And in an intracerebral hemorrhage patient, that can come from several sources, right? So we have the ICH volume here, the parenchymal hematoma volume. Um, we have the, um, the edema that surrounds these hemorrhages. This is maximal at about two to four days or so, but increases even over a period of 10 to 14 days in many patients. Um, we have blood in the ventricles here as a possible source and associated hydrocephalus. Um, as far as cerebral ischemia is concerned, the ICP number is perhaps most uh, useful in its context in the calculation of the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is, of course, the MAP minus the ICP. So I think it's useful to always go back to the Brain Trauma Foundation uh, guidelines and literature, which have sort of set up the concept that this individualized approach to um, TBI patients in particular and to ICP management with very specific thresholds is, is an important one. And there is an abundance, of course, of level two and level three evidence that we should be putting in an ICP monitor in all salvageable patients with TBI and that we should be treating the intracranial pressure at levels above, say, now 22 millimeters of mercury. And, and that's a bit of a change from back in 2007. It used to be 20 millimeters of mercury. So, most of the time, so these, these guidelines are obviously constantly changing based on, on some of the data, and this is certainly not level one data that we're, we're looking at. 
Similarly for CPP, um, we generally feel that maintaining, at least in the TBI population, a CPP greater than 60 or 70 millimeters of mercury has been shown to give superior outcomes uh, compared to unadjusted uh, patients from the traumatic coma data bank. And therefore, um, you know, these uh, sort of guidelines have arisen. And, and again, it's, it's a little bit unsure whether the goal of the CPP is more to decrease the burden of cerebral hypotension rather than increasing the cerebral perfusion pressure per se. It's not really clear which of those two goals is the most important. Um, but these thresholds have arisen 5 to 70 millimeters mercury in the past and now 60 to 70 millimeters mercury in order to obtain uh, better outcomes than one might obtain with ICP monitoring alone. Um, again, this threshold is probably um, not fully known, or no, nor does it apply necessarily to all patients, and perhaps it depends more on the autoregulatory status of the patient, um, which we often don't know the, 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 the true story about. Um, there have been studies that have looked at aggressively increasing CPP in TBI patients. Uh, Claudia Robertson ran one of these trials. And what they found was that putting CPP above 90 millimeters of mercury was actually didn't improve the outcomes, but it did actually increase the risk of respiratory complications. Um, of note, however, the, the rate of ischemic events, cerebral ischemic events or strokes, was lower in patients who had higher CPP targets. So some of you might remember this trial, the best trip trial, that really sort of challenged our notion of ICP monitoring in TBI patients. This was a trial run out of third world countries in South America, Bolivia and Ecuador, that um, sort of randomized patients to a therapeutic protocol with an ICP monitor versus a therapeutic protocol with imaging and very frequent clinical exams by the nursing staff. And this trial, in fact, showed no difference in outcome for the primary outcome measures of functional and outcome and cognitive status, um, nor of mortality at six months. And so this really uh, you know, challenged the concept that you need to put an ICP monitor in everybody. The trial was criticized for being underpowered, of course, and that the imaging and clinical exam arm of the trial actually was done so well that this uh, gave decreased relevance to the ICP monitoring uh, portion of the trial. And, and this, was, this was the reason that the, IC, that the um, clinical exam arm did so well. And indeed, if you look at the, the sort of the, the um, treatments that were given, there were more treatments given for high intracranial pressure in the non-monitored group in terms of hyperventilation and anti-edema treatments than were given in the group that had the ICP monitors. So I don't think that trial has necessarily changed our use of ICP monitors in uh, the United States as well. And this is um, a prospective database uh, in New York State. And this was done as a quality improvement project uh, from 2001 to 2009. And they found that their age-adjusted mortality rates here on the right decreased significantly over this time period, during which they did two things. Um, they increased the adherence to ICP monitor insertion guidelines uh, from the Traumatic Brain Foundation uh, from here 55 to 75%, and they increased adherence in CPP guidelines from 14% to 48%. And so it's probably not a coincidence that they saw a decrease in mortality rates as well. So what about ICH? So we certainly have um, targets um, in terms of ICH pathology. Um, however, we don't have any magic numbers. We don't have any validated ICP thresholds. Uh, we certainly don't have any level one evidence that using an ICP monitor or 
treating patients according to a certain uh, targetable level will improve outcomes. And in fact, you could argue that we really don't even know who we should be putting the monitors into. Um, I think your center is a very aggressive center when it comes to ICP monitoring in this disease. Um, I'll show you the American Heart Association indications for ICP monitoring. This is level 2B recommendation, and they suggest that you consider a monitor with a GCS less than or equal to 8, clinical evidence of herniation, and those with significant intraventricular hemorrhage or hydrocephalus. I'll tell you that um, across the 83, where I work, these last two indications are pretty much the only indications that we put in an ICP monitor in intracerebral hemorrhage patients, IVH and hydrocephalus. It is rare that we would choose these, uh, these first two indications, but you know, I've, I've just had lunch with the fellows and some of the faculty here, and, and I think that you guys put in quite a few more um, external ventricular drains than, uh, than we might be doing at, at Hopkins. And so the use of EVD in, in IVH is, uh, is, is sort of a pet peeve of mine, I guess. And, and we did a, um, a study using the national inpatient sample a number of years ago. And this is a, um, a randomized stratified, 20% stratified sample of all hospital admissions in the United States. And you guys have probably seen a number of studies that use the NIS. Um, and we looked at the ICD-9 codes at that time. They now have ICD-10 codes but for ICH and presence of intraventricular hemorrhage and the use of um, an EBD. And what we found was over the period that we had available evidence of, or available data, 2002 to, through 11, we found that the use of EBD in this disease, as best as we could tell, was from 6 to 7%, and it really didn't go up that much over time. Um, and if we consider down here in the lower right, this is data from the STITCH trial, which is one of the sur first surgical trials for intracerebral hemorrhage. The prevalence of intraventricular hemorrhage in a patient with spontaneous ICH is about 40 to 45%. And we see that consistently across um, you know, studies. Um, of that, about half of those patients have hydrocephalus. And if you look in the clinical trial, less than 10% received an EBD. So I would argue that our current usage of EVDs, even in clinical trial data, is probably much less than one would expect based on the fact that the rate of hydrocephalus is about three times as much and the amount of IVH is certainly much higher than, um, than what we're putting in an EVD for. So why might that be? Well, there is some earlier data um, that looked at this, pro this whole issue. So this comes from uh, Kamel and Hemphill, which are two neurointensivists very well known, um, and they looked at uh, 238 patients with spontaneous ICH, and they looked at who got a monitor. And about 24% got um, an ICP monitor, and these were mostly patients with intraventricular hemorrhage. So most of the patients, uh, at least in our center, will get an EVD. They, they tend not to get parenchymal monitors or Lycox monitors. They're, they're strictly EVDs for um, drainage of spinal fluid and management of intracranial pressure. In this group, 70% had an episode, a single episode at least, of an ICP greater than 20 millimeters mercury. So this is not ter terribly uncommon, obviously, and this number, 70%, will interestingly replicate itself through several studies, that, which, I'll, which I'll show you. But of all the variables that they tested, ICP greater than 25, the number of elevations, the area under the curve, CPP less than 60 or 70, or the AUC, none of them were associated with the 12-month modified Rankine scale. And for those of you who don't know, the MRS is a very commonly used scale uh, of neurologic injury ranging from zero to six, where six is death and, and zero is an intact and healthy patient. So, so that was the early data. And some, some other um, predecessors had, had, had written similar types of papers. 
So we did a systematic review and meta-analysis of the prevalence and mortality rate of intracranial hypertension in spontaneous ICH. And we used as conclusion criteria adults with primary ICH. That means that these were non-traumatic, no structural lesion, no brain tumors, no AVMs or aneurysms, just generally either a hypertensive ICH or often these patients are on anticoagulants or they may have a condition called cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Those are some of the main um, uh, causes of spontaneous ICH. And the, we looked at patients who got an ICP monitor, and then uh, the prevalence of intracranial hypertension defined here as at least one episode of ICP greater than 20 in any patient. So this was a small meta-analysis, as you can see, um, only 381 patients uh, across six studies, and the pool prevalence rate of intracranial hypertension, a single episode greater than 20, was 67%. So very similar to the previous retrospective study uh, from Kamel. And um, this, you know, this meta-analysis suffers from extreme heterogeneity, right? So we have a mixed uh, sampling of types of monitors, mostly EVDs, but also some parenchymal monitors. There were different uh, ICP monitoring protocols or treatment protocols, um, and uh, there was different duration of ICP monitoring, of course. So, um, uh, you know, you know what can we sort of say about this? Um, it may be an underestimate. Um, I suspect it is an underestimate. Why? Because we excluded, they, well, all the studies excluded moribund patients who died too early to get a monitor, and those who went to surgery who had evacuation of their hematoma. Both of these groups may have had high ICP, but were not included in this analysis. So moving on to the mortality rate. So here we had, um, we pulled uh, four studies with 239 patients and looked at the mortality rate with an episode of intracranial hypertension, and that was 50%. So again, um, a very heterogeneous population, a fairly high mortality rate, but, but then again, we're looking at extreme confounding by indication, right? So the patients who are getting these monitors are generally going to be the sicker patients with higher clinical severity of hemorrhage, and likely that is going to push up our, our mortality estimate. In any case, that, um, that's the evidence that we found uh, from all of the studies that have been, had been conducted thus far um, on intracranial hypertension after ICH. And if you look at the determinants um, of high ICP in this disease, and this is some data from three different studies, and these are the expected factors you would, you would find, right? Lowered Glasgow Coma Score, more midline shift, hydrocephalus, age, uh, lower age, right, because we have less atrophy in younger patients, infratentorial lesions, and larger hematoma volume. So more recently, and in fact, this is, um, this is much more recently. This is just from, um, I think, August of this year. Um, they, uh, some of, uh, of our colleagues did a study of intracranial hypertension um, and ICP monitoring, I should say, uh, in ICH from the ERIC study. Now, I know the neurointensivists know what the ERIC database is, but essentially this is a large epidemiological database um, of 1,000 white patients, 1,000 black patients, and 1,000 Hispanic patients, all who had spontaneous ICH and who were followed over a long period of time to determine outcomes. They all had MRI scans, and so they have a very well-adjudicated um, set of outcomes on this group of patients. And they decided to look at, um, a retro in retrospective fashion, um, the ERIC database from 2010 to 2015 uh, for ICH patients with ICP monitoring and compared to those without. So they compared ICP, ICH patients with monitors uh, versus those without using a propensity scored match analysis um, in, I think, 420 patients in each arm. And they adjusted for the usual things that you would, you would want to adjust for in the propensity score analysis. 
uh, age, GCS, the pre-morbid baseline functional status of the patient, the ICH and the IVH volume, and so on. The primary outcome was 90-day mortality, and they looked at a number of secondary outcomes as well. Um, in hospital mortality, they looked at some of the hyperosmolar therapy, the intensity of care, the length of hospital stay, um, and then they looked at a little bit of quality of life data and Barthel index, which is another functional outcome score that grades how well you're able to take care of your activities of daily living. And then they did a secondary analysis of patients who didn't have any intraventricular hemorrhage, which was the usual indication for having the monitor in the first place. So in the unmatched analysis, they compared you know, 2,400 patients who had no monitor to a few over 500 patients with monitors. And of course, they found again that the patients who had monitors were the more sick patients with the higher mortality, the worse um, modified Rankin score outcomes, and higher intensity of care in terms of their mannitol and their hypertonic saline use and the surgery and the length of stay. So that's not too surprising. Then they did the propensity score match analysis, and I apologize that this data is a little bit small, but here they showed that the mortality was not different um, at 90 days, but the rates of modified Rankin scale, functional outcomes were better in the patients who had no ICP monitoring compared to those who had ICP monitoring. And this is supposedly a very matched, a well-matched analysis. However, again, they found that the patients who had the ICP monitors got more anti-ICP treatments, okay? They got more mannitol, more hypertonic saline, they had more surgery, and they also had a longer uh, length of stay. So you could argue that despite this, this adjustment, this uh, matching analysis, these patients were still in some ways sicker than the patients without monitors. And then they looked at the patients who had no intraventricular hemorrhage. And this was a smaller group, 111 patients in each arm. And here, the mortality rate was actually lower in the patients who had an ICP monitor compared to those who did not. So patients who probably had a parenchymal probe or had no, you know, or an EVD but without intraventricular hemorrhage, and those patients had to appear to have better mortality. However, again, when they looked at the functional outcome, and it's a little bit important how you actually dichotomize these functional outcome scores, but they used a modified Rankin score of zero to two versus worse outcomes, three to six, where you know, three is still an ambulatory patient, right? So it's not a, not a bad outcome, especially at 90 days for an ICH patient. But in these very good outcome patients, this very good classification for a good outcome, they again found patients who had ICP monitoring did worse than patients without. And then the same patterns arose with the intensity of care being much higher in the patients who had the ICP monitors. So this study is of course limited, but this is what, you know, this is this patient, this is a study in the Journal of Neurosurgery, and they came to the conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to support routine use of ICP monitoring in patients with ICH. Now this was not specifically designed to evaluate the outcomes with ICH monitoring. The ERIC study is not, certainly not designed for that. There's a lot of confounding by indication again. There was no protocol of who would get an EVD or, or an, IC, an ICP monitor. And there were a lot of unmeasured severity fa factors which may influence the patient selection for ICP monitoring. So they didn't measure evidence of uh, uh, factors like clinical herniation, midline shift, or the amount of edema surrounding the, the hematoma. Um, the higher rates of ICH evacuation, as I had stated, and the longer length of hospital stay in the matched um, ICP monitoring cohort suggested that they were still sicker patients who got monitors. Um, and again, they had non-protocolized management protocols, different devices, and, and so on. So um, great, great study, 
But, um, and, you know, again, it's not a randomized controlled trial. So now I'll present some data that we, um, that we did um, using the CLEAR3 database. And uh, this sort of addresses the issue of what is the contribution of intracranial hypertension to patient death and, and functional outcomes. So the CLEAR3 trial was a 500-patient trial funded by the NIH to look at um, in patients who had small parenchymal clots, less than 30 ml, so small brain tissue hemorrhage, and large obstructive hydrocephalus with intraventricular hemorrhage, who all required an EVD as part of routine care, um, did those patients do better if you injected alteplase uh, up to four days every eight hours compared to injecting saline in, you know, in the other 250, so 250 in each arm. And this trial was um, a neutral trial. Um, it was published about five years ago. And however, it did allow us to do a lot of further data analysis. And the questions that we asked were, um, what is the occurrence of ICP elevation and low cerebral perfusion pressure in severe IVH? How is the ICP elevation and CPP related to outcome? And does the alteplase injection uh, impact these numbers? So this is the scatter plot showing um, the ICP on the y-axis and the cerebral perfusion pressure on the x-axis showing all of the 19,000 or so measurements. So we measured ICP every four hours over a period of seven days in these patients from the time of EVD insertion. And we measured the um, CPP every um, four hours also for up to seven days after enrollment. Um, so here what you see is um, a big bulk of numbers here, dots in the lower right uh, corner in the green box, which are in the, the range that we would probably like to see patients, ICP less than 20, CPP greater than 70, and this was 84% of, of the readings. Then we have 7% of the readings each in these boxes or these areas where we have one number that's not right, so the, either the ICP is above 20 or the CPP is below 70. And then in the red box we have the, the, the readings that are both high ICP together with low CPP. The opening pressure at EVD placement in this population was ranged from minus three to 65 with a median of 10. So it's, it's really all over the place. And obviously there are a lot of factors that, that determine that first reading, which probably are not relevant to, to further readings. In any case, what it shows you is that if you put in an EVD and you drain spinal fluid, you control the ICP about 84% of the time. And that's actually pretty good. So, you know, the EVD is obviously doing, you know, probably doing something. Now, if we look at the number of patients with ICP threshold events, and these are ICP greater than 20 or greater than 30, we found that a lot of patients had at least one event, right? So 72% had at least one event greater than 20, a third of patients had at least one greater than 30, and then smaller percentages greater than 40 or 50. There was no difference between the alteplase and the saline groups as far as having one of these high readings. When we looked at the CPP thresholds, um, less than 70, 60, and 50, we see here quite a few patients had at least one episode less than 70, 22%, uh, one episode less than 60, and then very few less than 50. And here we did see a difference between the saline and alteplase groups uh, with the saline-treated patients having more frequent uh, number of patients with low CPP readings compared to um, the alteplase-treated patients. So in these graphs, we looked at whether um, ICP and CPP were associated with mortality. So these are multivariate analyses that are adjusted for the usual outcomes that we are the usual confounders in an ICH population. 
So typically the age, the Glasgow Coma score, the, um, the baseline modified Rankin scale, which had to be zero or one to get into the trial. So you had to be a, a functional patient coming in. Um, the uh, ICH volume, the IVH volume, and having an, an ICH in the thalamus. So having an, a thalamic hemorrhage is usually a very bad prognostic indicator, and that goes into the model as well. And so for ICP, we found that the percentage of readings greater than 20 and greater than 30 was significantly associated with higher day 30 mortality, but not at day 180. If you had numbers of, or the percentage of readings that occurred above 20 consecutively, so for more than just one four-hour interval, you know, every eight hours or 12 hours and so on, then there was a significant impact on both day 30 and day 180 mortality. And for CPP, the percentage of readings that were less than 70 and less than 60 were associated with the day 30 mortality being higher, and percentage of readings less than 70 and those combined with an ICP greater than 20 as well, that was associated with both mortality at day 30 and day 180. So when we looked at the functional outcomes, it's a lot harder to show that any intervention affects the functional outcomes more than it affects the mortality. Mortality is usually not too difficult, but functional outcomes, especially at later time points, are affected by many events that happen after the patient has gone through hospitalization and and subsequent, and subsequent events. In any case, we did not find any relationship with functional outcomes for the ICP thresholds that we tested. And for the CPP thresholds, we did find that the percentage of CPP readings less than 70, and those greater, uh, less than 70 together with an ICP reading greater than 20, those were associated with worse functional outcome, meaning a modified Rankin scale of four to six at day 30, but not at day 180. So, at further time points, there were too many other factors that were dominating the, the functional outcome picture. But it appears that, you know, CPP is having a little bit bigger effect than ICP on, on the outcomes. And these are some contour plots um, that, um, that show the relationship between the day 180 mortality on the left and the poor modified Rankin scale on the right by the duration of exposure to a low cerebral perfusion pressure. So here, the probability of a worse outcome, either mortality or poor modified Rankin scale, is increasing as you have greater time exposure to lower levels of CPP. We did not see this sort of nice color analysis for the ICP thresholds. So we, we sent this pair, paper off to the reviewers and they came back and said, well, why don't you look at different um, thresholds of ICP and see whether any of the thresholds that you, looked, that you could look at was any better than any of the other thresholds. So we did this outcome discrimination analysis where you take the, um, we took a variety of thresholds of ICP from less than 30 down to less, uh, from greater than 30 down to greater than 10. And we looked at the odds ratios for each of those thresholds in relationship to outcomes. And so this is, um, these are the odds ratios for mortality, the open circles for day 30, the closed circles for day 180. And what, what you can see is that there is a gradual increase in the odds ratio for in higher increased risk of mortality as the ICP threshold increases. Um, and some of these are, are significant, especially for um, you know, death at 180 days, it appears. Um, and the, um, but there doesn't appear that there, any of these odds ratios is really any better than any other. 
For the CPP threshold, um, we did a similar analysis, and again, the odds ratios increase a little bit. We looked at thresholds from less than 90 to less than 60, um, all the way over on the far right. And as the CPP goes down, as the threshold goes down, you see an increase in the odds ratio for higher mortality. But again, none of the um, odds ratios or none of the thresholds looks to be any different than any other threshold. For functional outcome, we didn't really get much of any results, right? So we see the odds ratios are, are all sort of sitting around one and, you know, there's, there's really nothing statistically significant and, you know, there's not really a big increase um, except at some of the, the sort of extreme, here, extreme readings here for CPP. So then we did the ROC analysis and uh, these graphs here on the right, uh, which are for the different outcomes, mortality at uh, 30 and 180 days and poor modified rank and scale at the same time points show that all the ROC curves overlap, right? So again, none of the thresholds tested was any better than any other. Um, and the AUC was generally above eight in all of the models tested. And for the CPP, same, same pattern. Um, all of the ROC curves are, are overlapping. So this is not the first analysis that we have done um, regarding um, the CLEAR-3 population and the previous populations. We have actually looked at two prior populations with intraventricular hemorrhage and EVD use for ICP monitoring. The first was a small study when we used urokinase uh, for injection of 11 patients. Here, the um, percentage of readings greater than 20 was 14%. Um, and here at the bottom, the first 100 patients that were treated in our phase one and two trials, the percentage of readings above 20 was 8.4%. In the current study, in the phase three trial, that number of readings was just over 9%. So we're seeing a pretty consistent uh, percentage of readings um, over 20 with very, very small percentages of readings um, above 40 or 50 or even 30 millimeters mercury. So now um, I want to switch to a second trial that we have just recently completed, the MISTI-3 trial. And this was a surgical trial of minimally invasive surgery for, again, spontaneous ICH. But this looked at the opposite spectrum of the, the volume um, sort of differences. So in the MISTI trial, the volumes were all greater than 30 milliliters, which is a very large volume in ICH. Um, all the patients um, had were allowed to have some IVH, but if they had massive IVH, they were excluded. And they were also excluded if they had GCS of 3 or 15. You had to be sort of in the, in the middle range. So the surgery itself involved placing, a placement of a burr hole. A catheter was placed by the neurosurgeon. It was aspirated. They took out as much blood as they could. And then we gave Q8 hour injections of Altaplase into the hematoma cavity this time over a course of three days with the intent to reduce the blood volume to less than 15 mLs remaining. Now, this, uh, the uh, comparison arm was a standard medical care arm with, with best medical care. This trial, again, was a neutral trial, okay? So there was no benefit in terms of the primary outcome, which was, again, a dichotomized modified Rankin scale at one year, comparing modified Rankin 0 to 3 to 4 to 6. Um, in any case, there were some patients that did have ICP monitors in this study, uh, 34 medical, or 38 medical patients and 34 surgical patients. So a much smaller percentage, of course, um, since we excluded patients with large IVH. And in this study, we, found, we looked at, again, similar thresholds. We looked at the percentage of readings greater than 20 here and greater than 30. And we did find that the surgical patients had significantly fewer readings greater than 20 and 30 compared to the medical patients. 
Um, they also had, in the comparison up here, the percentage who had any elevated ICP greater than 20 was also significantly less if you went through the surgical treatment. We then looked at the CPP events in the same group. And again, these were readings taken every four hours um, over a period of seven days from randomization um, or from EBD placement in most cases. And here we found that the, again, percentage of readings less than 70 and less than 60 millimeters mercury here were significantly associated, uh, were significantly, I should say, less frequent in the surgical treated patients compared to the medical treated patients. So um, not too surprising, perhaps, there was a, a bit of a, a trend or a weak association for the percentage of patients having at least one event less than 60 or less than 70. So obviously, taking out the blood clot does help to reduce the, uh, the ICP and improve the CPP. So these are all summary measures so far that we've talked about of ICP. Well-defined thresholds, these are consistently used as predictors of poor outcomes in population-based studies. They, of course, contribute to the TBI guidelines, and they do also contribute to the entry criteria investigating a lot of the acute interventions for TBI. Um, it's a one-fits-all approach, and so the real problem is that um, we are sort of applying a single threshold to patients who may be very old, may have a lot of cerebral atrophy, may have you know, very different hemorrhage volumes, and, and may have different um, sort of outcomes that are not entirely related to having a high ICP. And you might argue that some of the failure of these uh, TBI trials may um, have occurred despite achieving ICP control, which was not terribly relevant to those particular outcomes. So I was inspired um, last summer, or last fall actually, by a group that uh, did, uh, out of Penn actually, um, that did this analysis of TBI patients using group-based trajectory modeling. And they hypothesized that temporal patterns of ICP evolution can be identified and may predict outcomes and may be informative beyond the conventional time invariant ICP measures and thresholds. So they analyzed 400 patients with severe TBI. They identified hourly trajectories over the first five days and they found six distinct uh, trajectory groups with um, progressively higher ICP levels in each group. So these are the um, groups that they identified um, at the top. The A group on the left is all patients, and uh, the B group in includes those without hemicraniectomy. But in fact, the trajectories look remarkably similar. So what they found was that the unfavorable outcomes um, and these were in terms of disability rating scale, mortality at six months, and um, they used the uh, Glasgow outcome score less than four. They, um, they found that unfavorable outcomes were predicted both for groups with low ICPs that rose gradually over time, so such as the pink line way at the bottom here, or remained persistently low, such as the blue line here. Those patients had poor outcomes, and as well, for the patients who had persistently elevated ICP, sort of the, uh, which is the group five here, which is the blue line, second from the top, and those with severe intracranial hypertension, as you might expect, group six, which is the line with the, um, with the big wave. Um, the favorable outcome groups were those in the middle. The, the green group here, which had um, double digit ICPs and rare spikes greater than 20, and the group four, the largest group, which had sort of intermittent spikes, which is the orange line here. Um, they also found that the groups with the most favorable outcome had the greatest variability in their ICP. 
and they sort of uh, hypothesize that there might be some sort of adaptive compliance mechanism going on that, uh, that allowed these favorable groups to adapt well to, to variability. So this, um, this kind of data is, is fairly compelling, and you know, I thought that was rather interesting, but if you really read down into the supplements of the paper, you can detect some differences that might make you think twice about whether this type of modeling is, is going to be sort of the answer in moving forward in, in phenotyping ICP trajectories. So group one and two patients were an older group of patients, and they did have a higher um, uh, withdrawal of active life support um, percentage in those two groups. And group um, three, one and two actually had higher contusion volumes compared to groups three and four. The group five and six patients had higher volumes of subdural and epidural hematomas compared to the group three and four patients. But nevertheless, there's some suggestion that individualized ICP trajectories may be informative in terms of outcome. So, um, so I did the same thing with the IVH patients from the CLEAR-3 trial. So I identified the ICP trajectories over 10 days after EVD placement and the CPP trajectories over seven days after enrollment in the CLEAR-3 trial. And we first uh, grouped these trajectories without risk factors. Then we looked at different risk factors that may affect the trajectories. Um, and these were, of course, demographics and presentation variables and severity treatment variables. Um, we also looked at specific times from, times from EVD insertion to, um, to uh, you know, treatment and so forth. We didn't find that any of these were very informative. And then we put the trajectory groups as an additional variable into the logistic regression models for the 30 and 180 day outcomes, uh, mortality and modified Rankine scale, uh, along with the existing known predictors of, of ICH severity. So this is the, um, the, the group-based trajectory modeling for the ICP. Uh, for 464 patients, and this shows basically that a four-group membership we found worked the best. And so here we have um, the most common group is, is group two, showing this sort of slow linear increase in ICP over time. Then we have uh, group three, which sort of shows a quadratic formula starting at about 11 millimeters of mercury. Group four is the highest ICP group, um, but again, not terribly high. Most of these numbers are below 20. Um, and then group one has a low, very stable ICP over time and is the smallest group, or actually the, the group four is the smallest group. And we compared groups two, three, and four to group one to see if there was any difference in outcomes. And what we found was that the group four day 30 mortality was significantly um, more likely compared to the group one uh, trajectory. And this is again adjusted for all other factors. Groups two and three didn't have any difference with respect to group one. So not too much impact from the ICP side. For the um, CPP, a three-group membership worked best um, based on the criteria that we had selected. And here, um, group two is the most common group, which um, shows this quadratic formula along with group three here, um, which shows a little bit higher CPP. Group one, in this case, shows a slow linear increase in CPP starting at about 75. So these are not really low CPPs, right? I mean, the lowest CPP here is, um, on average at least, is, is a 75. And here we found for the CPP that good modified Rankine scale, good functional outcome at day 30 was significantly more likely for groups three and groups two compared to group one. So the groups with higher CPP were having better functional outcomes at an early stage. And for mortality, again, day 30 mortality was lower in the group threes compared to the ones. Um, we haven't tried the day 180 outcomes yet. 
I suspect that they're not going to be significant based on what we know from, from the previous data. But it shows, does suggest that there may be something um, about these trajectories, especially in terms of CPP, for predicting outcomes in, in these patients. So now I'm going to finish by essentially talking about some of the limitations of the measurements. Um, so we're obviously dependent on this device, usually an extra, extraventricular catheter that is subject to blood clots, uh, poor waveforms, and having different pressures in different compartments, and of course the problem that if you leave the EVD open to drain, that may mask some of the ICP elevations during the period of drainage compared to the period of monitoring. And what we did for the four-hour measurements was the drain was open for four hours and then the nurse clamped it for five minutes every four hours and took a reading. So you can imagine that some ICP elevations could have been missed. The second issue is one that, you know, I think about a lot in our ICU is that our um, CPP um, may have been overestimated. And your, your level of CPP really depends on uh, the zero level for calibration of your arterial blood pressure transducer, right? And so you guys keep the arterial blood pressure transducer at the level of the heart or the level of the head? Does anyone know? The heart, yeah, and, and we do the same thing. And so if you look at this uh, sort of, and there's nothing in the guidelines that says where you should be leveling the arterial blood pressure to measure ICP or, C or CPP. And if you look at this sort of trigonometry example, if you have a patient at 30 degrees and you have a difference between the heart and the head of about 30 centimeters, then your your MAP or your CPP will be overestimated by about 11 millimeters of mercury depending on whether, or under, underestimated, depending on whether you have the zero level at the heart or at the head level. And most uh, centers do measure the, um, the arterial blood pressure at the level of the heart, and, and that's probably not the best place to put the arterial transducer if you're going to measure CPP, but we haven't changed practice as yet. Um, I think uh, our very high CPPs that are project predicting poor outcomes may be because we are overestimating the CPP. And finally, just a word on the intercompartmental pressure gradients. Um, when we looked at the uh, CLEAR-3 trial population, there were a number of patients who had bilateral or dual EVDs, one on each side, or at some points, one on both sides, or two on one side. And we found 118 patients who had more than one EVD during all or part of the ICP monitoring protocol, and 109 who had opposite side EVDs. And we looked at those patients to compare the pressures between them. Um, as you might expect, left and right sides for IVH dominance is not, uh, is 50-50, right? So there's, there's no reason to have more IVH on one side or another. Um, the EVD in most centers, and certainly in ours, usually goes in on the right side, um, about two-thirds to one-third, and usually goes in on the side of the non-dominant hemorrhage in order to maintain a lot of CSF flow around the catheter compared to the dominant side. In any case, we looked at the number of subjects who have at least one pair of divergent readings um, by each threshold. So in this sample of 109 patients with two catheters, 85% um, of the patients had at least a um, five millimeter difference in readings at some points. 62% had at least a 10 millimeter difference in readings at some points, and a third had at least a 15 millimeter difference in readings at some points. And if you look at the sort of what those, when those readings might be greater than 20 or 30, which might be your treatment thresholds, you can see that when the difference is 5, 10, or 15 millimeters mercury between two catheters, some of the time those readings are going to be above your threshold for treatment on one side, but not on the other side. And so that might have led to differences in, um, in treatment according to where you were measuring the ICP.
if we looked at, you know, why patients might have differences in these ICP numbers, usually it was a situation of having catheters farther apart from each other um, and having a catheter sitting in a blood clot, which usually gave a poor waveform and may have given a dampened ICP number. Um, in other cases, there would be catheters that would be sitting outside of the ventricular compartment, like here, and the numbers were quite divergent. And when those catheters were replaced and brought closer together, the ICP numbers came much closer together to each other. So in conclusion, um, the prevalence and mortality rates associated with intracranial hypertension after ICH are high, and they may be underestimated. Due to the limited data that we have in ICH, ICP monitoring is still a level 2B recommendation, and it is likely underperformed. I'm not sure that it's going to change as far as the, um, uh, as far as the recommendation. The excursions, however, from our brain trauma foundation thresholds for ICP and CPP do appear to be associated with some harm, especially early mortality, and in the case of CPP, uh, poor functional outcomes as well in the, um, in the ICH population, especially with um, large interventricular hemorrhage. And whether the TBI targets are relevant or whether there are alternative targets that could optimize management of ICH really can't be determined from the data that we have at this time. So back to question one. If you selected E, that the ICP monitor after ICH allows CPP to be assessed and targeted, um, that's the answer I would have chosen. Uh, none of the other ones are correct. And I think at this point in time, I, I would argue that the CPP is probably the more important uh, number to be following than the ICP, but you still need the ICP monitor in order to target a CPP level. So thanks very much, and I'm happy to take any questions. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I haven't looked at that. I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, project to look at. The problem, the problem that, well, the issue with the data is that we're all lo we're looking at severe ICH and IVH, and we're probably not looking at the patients that the stroke recommendations are hopefully going to sort of limit themselves to. So even the AHA guidelines right now do say that for small and moderate-sized hematomas, um, which is what all of the data on blood pressure is based on, right? All of Interact2 is a small hematoma volume of what, you know, 11 or 12 cc's and the, um, and the blood pressure recommendations that came out of that. Nobody has looked at the blood pressure rec recommendations for large ICH, greater than 30, or for large IVH. And even now, the, the AHA guidelines do provide an out, if you like, for large hemorrhage where you think mass effect is a serious issue and that cerebral ischemia might be, an, or brain tissue perfusion may be compromised by lowering blood pressure. So I guess 
my hope would be it would be interesting to look at how the blood pressure s sort of levels out with those CPP guidelines. But uh, I I'm hoping that the, the AHA would be sensible and say that, you know, you still need to treat the patient based on individual assessment of what you think their cerebral perfusion pressure should be and, and you know, use your ICP monitor accordingly. Would you agree? I mean... Yeah, I think the risk is just overgeneralization to the entire population of ICH, uh, in, especially in emergency departments, right, where everybody gets less than 140 as the treatment goal, and all of a sudden then you start seeing um, more strokes. And I, I should mention, I, I didn't show this data, but we did see an increase in, um, we measured all, monitored all of the ischemic events in the CLEAR-3 trial, and there were significantly more ischemic events in the patients who had low CPP, less than 70, compared to those who had greater. And, uh, and the, you know, it was just uh, one more finding, right? Exactly, and we usually would go to 60 if it was a standard, you know, TBI case or a, you know, other type of case. Um, yes. Yeah. So. Um, Many of these second DVDs went in in European centers, I will say, and uh, these uh, were sometimes advocated. We had a surgical center that did all of the adjudication of all the scans and actually sort of encouraged centers to, to do certain things. And um, typically when you have large bilateral ventricular hemorrhage where both compartments are equally full and where there, you know, if you have a little, usually you have one side full and the other side there's a little bit of clot. And those are not the cases that uh, we, would, we would have in the past advocated for a second DVD. The, um, the, the bilateral DVDs were placed in patients who obviously they wanted to give TPA on both sides and they couldn't get the blood clot out on the side that wasn't, didn't have the catheter in it. And so what we learned from the trial, and I, I didn't show this data, it wasn't really the topic, but if you could remove more than 80% of the blood clot out of the ventricle, then this primary outcome of modified Rankin you know, zero to three at 180 days was actually significantly better than patients who were in the, the standard medical therapy arm. So achieving a target of greater clot volume reduction could actually achieve the outcome, the benefit of, the, of that particular procedure. And the same is true of the minimally invasive surgical trial. They show that if you took out more blood, you could achieve the good outcome that you wanted. But the trial was diluted by all these patients who didn't have sufficient blood removed. So moving forward, what we are advocating is that people place the first DVD for ICP control, uh, and that usually would go into the into the ventricle with less CSF, with more CSF, sorry, and less blood, because you want the you don't want the thing to clot off. The second uh, um, EVD, what we're proposing, at least in the next trial, is to put that in in the operating room under stereotactic guidance, stick it directly into the clot, and start giving alteplase TPA into that uh, into that catheter to clear out the blood on that side. And so the idea would be if you take out enough blood, you're going to need two EVDs to do it because most patients are going to have some blood on both sides. So I don't think anyone's doing that right now, but uh, that's the thought. But thanks for the question. Great. Thanks very much.